Hello and welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And they said it could never happen. Episode 78. Hey, it's Lee Ford here at The Film File, joined as ever by the very mighty... Andy Meakin. Andy I'm, Meakin. Get... It's a Volk. These are... These intros get better every week. You introduce me as such, like, you big me up as though I'm something special. It just makes Andy, me feel... you're special to me. You're special <laughs> to the show. I'm special in many ways. <laughs> it, it, we couldn't do the show without you, because it would just be me going, I'm bored now. I'm talking to myself for too long. Have you heard my radio? You're the radio show. <laughs> Thank God there's music. <laughs> How have you been? It's been an odd old week since I uh, I saw you last at Black Widow, which we'll be talking about later. But it's been a funny old week because we've had uh, we've had the football, which uh, I know. Let's get it out of the way right now. You and I aren't particularly the target market for football. I'm not saying that film <laughs> geeks can't be uh, can't be football fans because clearly they they can be. But I um, we would chatting just before we went to record this and we were talking about how the cinema's been utilizing um football football means now to me and I, 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 even like when people say oh but england are doing well you should be patriotic behind your country it's like no I, I don't need to be the same way that you know people don't suddenly get patriotic about any other sports that they're not interested in as soon as like an english player gets anywhere you don't have to be involved with it just because it's your country however it did have an impact on me professionally this week because uh, from the quarterfinal stages onwards we showed the England matches uh, on the screen and initially when we were told like oh we're going to be doing this we were kind of like oh do you is it going to do much are people going to want to go to the cinema to see a football match surely the cinema is the safe haven away from sports where people can escape and go and watch movies turns out People do want to see the see it in the cinema. The quarterfinal did well. The semi-final did even better. And then on Sunday night for the final, whilst the films in screens had a scant few admits, you know, In the Heights had a handful of people, which clearly In the Heights is not your football crowd. But we had two screens packed with 180 people watching the football, cheering, singing, stressing there was one woman who came out for it to like go outside for a smoke at least seven times during the match <laughs> she was getting that stressed um and it the, the strange thing is is how behaved people were because whilst there was still like some cheering and celebrating going on the screen until obviously the end of the match because we know how that ended everyone basically didn't there was no troublemakers because the audience for it in the cinema was not the same that you'd get in the city center watching it on a big screen with loads of drinks in front of them. People were still drinking. We had alcohol in the screens, but it, it was a it was a more pleasant crowd. And even though England lost, watching people leaving it and talking to people, they were just thanking us for giving the opportunity to see it in such a way. One bloke said that he wasn't sold on the idea of seeing things on the big screen, sports events on the big screen, when his mate said he'd got tickets for it. He was like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I think I want to go to a pub. But he's actually glad that he got to see on the big screen and he hopes that we do more sporting events in future. Cause he, he just said it's a marvelous way to enjoy the event and get involved. You know what? I mean, uh, as I said, right at the get go of this piece is that neither of us are particular sport fans. I, I dipped into it. I, funny enough, I was rehearsing, uh, rehearsing with the band and, uh, 
one of the one of the members, the guitar player, wanted to get home, so we finished just before eight, so he could uh, he could get home. And the, and the the streets were a ghost town, but I listened on the radio and I was intrigued to know what happened. Of course, I was uh, a, while not a fan, I was hoping that England would win. And um, uh, as a, a bit like you, I I, I don't support football; uh, it's not my bag, baby. But uh, I understand that millions and millions of people do. However, what I'm saying is is it, it ties it to what we've been saying all the way through lockdown, and this was always been my argument about coming back to cinema. It's the shared experience. Now, yes, you can have that shared experience in a pub, and I'm guessing that a lot of the people who came were, were people who came with, with families and with kids. Yeah. So that was a different way of, of becoming part of that shared experience. Well, now we've seen that theatre works in cinemas. People come to the, the theatre. It's yep. just a... It's seemingly another revenue stream that cinemas can can use and exploit. You know, big sporting events where people want to be part of that shared experience. Um, you don't really get it at home. You can get it in a pub, but that becomes a different experience. Get that, you know, theatre in a pub. We've, we've seen concerts in there. Mm-hmm. You could even start doing festivals. You know, if you've got yeah. a Glastonbury or you've got a, a download, you know, if you can can join up the dots and have live broadcasting that you're sharing that experience but that is what the church of cinema is all about it's about that church uh, shared experience it's all part of the evolution of cinema it's the, it's adapting to the times that we live in now and in this in this post-covid um world where streaming has built up some some following it's important that cinemas embrace different avenues in order to make revenue and sporting events festivals possibly that revenue Uh, on the point of the matches can i just say that i think it's about time that a certain 25 year old song should be retired i mean (laughs) come on it's getting embarrassing now for the past 25 years every two years when there's a major football sporting event all the sports cosplayers as i like to refer to them um all start chanting this song in the streets despite the fact it's not. If if it is coming home, then Hermes have delivered it and they've probably thrown it over the, over the back of Ireland and it's got lost in the sea somewhere. <laughs> um, I mean, the song was initially made as a celebration for the fact that England were hosting the Euros in 1996. It wasn't to do with actually winning it. It was to do with they were hosting it. England, like football, had come home for the whole matches. But it got adopted to be a past glory hunting chant and it's getting really, really ironically embarrassing. Um, I was discussing this online with someone who like, like was saying like, oh, well, you know, what else would they use? And I suggested, well, if you want something from 1996, which reflects the English mentality when it comes to football, Firestarter by The Prodigy would be a better track. <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody somewhere you could write to and, and make that complaint to Andy. I'm not quite sure who, but there's an email <laughs> address. I'll find it for you before the end of the show. Maybe death threats to Bedeal and Skinner. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a couple of um, anniversaries this, not necessarily this week, but this month. First one, and we mentioned uh, Raiders of Lost Ark um, a few weeks ago, being 40 years old, but it came out the same year, 1981, and that was John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Hard to believe that it's that that old a movie. What a film. Mm, I remember seeing it. I saw it at the Gormont Cinema, as was in Sheffield. Loved it, and I've loved it ever, ever since. And, and they've talked about reboots many, many times, but I really, really hope that, that it, it never it never gets one but 
I took yeah. my I took like uh, Raising Lost Star, I took my kid sister to see it, and we both thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it, and began my my love affair with the work of John Carpenter. To be honest, even though I'd seen I'd have seen Halloween, and I would have seen probably a couple of TV movies, but that was the one that proper proper started my fandom of, of John Carpenter. And the other anniversary, interestingly enough, in a in a rebooted version of the same cinema, because I think it then changed into I don't know if it was still the Gormont. But anyway, Terminator Two is thirty years old this very, very week. What are your memories of seeing that one? Well, I've told this story on um Harvey's podcast, which goes on later this week. But me and my mates were first in the queue for the showcase cinema in Liverpool for the very first showing of Terminator 2, and we got free T-shirts out of it. Uh, that that was one of my, like, re- resounding memories, including the fact, I mean, this is something that we didn't mention on Harvey's show. Details for Harvey's show will be given at the end of the episode uh, for people who want to go and listen to it. But what I didn't say on there is that when we got the T-shirts, the guys in the cinema, I feel sorry for them now that are working in a cinema and know that you just get these merchandise boxes given to you and you don't know what's in them. And they're handing out T-shirts of small and medium size to an adult audience because this was a 15-rated film. And I get past a small T-shirt and wave it in front of the guy going, what on earth is this? Is this supposed to go over <laughs> my thumb or what? Uh, and it's just like, why have you got kids' T-shirts? <laughs> and I have an argument with the cinema staff just saying, you've got kids' T-shirts for, a, for an adult film. Now I get that they had no control over that. He had literally just opened the box in front of us. I feel sorry for him. And I'd like, if you're out there listening, and you have a memory of serving some idiot at Showcase <laughs> Cinema who was only just in his late, late teens, and you just thought, this long-haired idiot in a leather coat is giving me abuse and I should kick him out, but you didn't. I thank you for not kicking me out, and I apologise my abrupt nature with you. I didn't understand at that point in time. <laughs> but 30 years ago, I mean, it was it was pretty groundbreaking stuff. There'd been a lot of build. To, to the to the release of the movie. I went to see it. I remember it really clearly. I remember going to see it. I remember having to book tickets. I think it's the first time I'd ever booked tickets in advance, uh, like a credit card booking uh, to go to the cinema. And uh, I, I was on a date. Uh, I remember taking this girlfriend to go see it. And I think a couple of friends as well. And we made a big night out of it. Uh, and it still, still holds up. And we, we talked about it in our in our deep dives, but it still holds up remarkably well. And that's that combination of, of CGI and practical effects. And you know, why Independence Day still holds up is while while the, the plot's hokey, the the effects have been, you know, uh, um, model effects and, and a limited amount of CG kind of makes them a little bit tireless, uh, timeless. It's when you see fully CG that then it dates it more than anything else. Jurassic Park, yeah. you know, it works because of the practicals and the, the 10 minutes worth of, of uh, the CG in it. But yeah, it still holds up. But uh, amazing to think that it's it's 30 years old and um, Escape from New York is 40. Anyway, on this particular show, we'll be taking you into a deep dive for another classic film of a generation that was certainly my introduction to big cinema, and that's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We'll be doing our look into Loki and reviewing last week's episode, By because by the time you get this, the new episode won't have aired. Andy will be reviewing... Uh, Fear Street Part 2, 1978, and Dora and the Lost City of Gold and Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, which are both available to find either on services or at cinemas. And together, we'll be giving you our thoughts on Marvel's latest 
the long time coming Black Widow. But before any of that, Andy Meakin has got a nose for news. In fact, he can scout out a news story, whether it's be simply hard fact news, great casting calls, or just pure speculation. In this sequence that is now fondly known as legendary almost, it's known as the news. We're going to be talking about it later on in the reviews, but Black Widow this weekend, all eyes have been on it. Like we said last week, this is the tester for cinemas and streaming because it got its Disney release on the streaming network at the same day that it went internationally at the theatres. And reports have come in and it's done well. Kudos to Disney. They've seemed to have been a success both on streaming and at cinemas. Uh, it debuted in theatres two days earlier in the UK. and. Over the weekend, the figures came in, and this is the first time that any streaming service has released its weekend figures for the actual streaming purchases. Normally, they keep them very secretly, and it's only like third parties that have to speculate. But this time, Walt Disney themselves have pointed out that $60 million of revenue was generated internationally on Disney Plus rentals alone, which is great numbers. But analysts predict a strong drop-off for week two, as unlike theatres, most people buy day one and there's rarely much demand week two onwards. The film costs 200 million to make, so clearly 60 million, while stunning, would be a problem if the drop-off's bad. So it's quite good news that the box office in the US took $80 million over the weekend and internationally another $78 million, which means that the film has already passed the 200 million of the basic budget Normally, films have to do three times the budget to be considered profitable. It's on tra track to definitely be achieving that. Um, it puts its opening weekend alongside the figures for Doctor Strange's opening weekend. And it's ahead of Ant-Man and the Wasp, Thor, Captain America, the first Avenger, the first Ant-Man film, and Incredible Hulk for MCU openings. So that's not, not too shabby. In fact, those figures reflect the, not only the best figures we've had since the pandemic, but, but pre-pandemic as well. Fantastic. I mean, we we were saying after we saw the movie that the film has a lot of heavy lifting to do. It has to bring people back into the cinema. It has to reintroduce cinema for the for the MCU. It's got a, a lot riding on it. It's got a character who is a familiar character. We're not bringing in a new character, but it's a female character. And, you know, female-led films have uh, always been... Uh, what's the term I'm looking for? They're, they're not a, a, a clear-cut box office winner, uh, but but Black yeah. Widow's proven that. So it's proven that there's an appetite out there for audiences to get back into into the movies in a big way. And uh, there are still restrictions, as we know, across cinemas in the UK, Europe, and the US. And there's been a football tournament on as well, yep. so that will reflect in in European figures as to uh as to box office so we might see a pickup in week two but it, in, in all around whether you whether you've seen the movie uh one way or another it, it is a, a resounding success and a resounding success thankfully for cinema and it goes back to something that we've spoken about many many times is the right film will bring people in tenant wasn't that film that's nothing no damning faint damning we're not giving tenant a hard time but with those sorts of figures, it just proves that there's an appetite for a certain kind of film to get people into uh, into the big screens again. So congratulations yeah. to uh, uh, to Black Widow and to uh, Marvel and Disney. 
so what I, I'm, I'm going to sort of ask you, Andy, and I think I, we know the answer, is is there going to be a market then for dual releases now? Are, there, are Disney going to reconsider streaming more so than they're going to reconsider cinema releases as, uh, as Warner's were doing only a year over the last year? I think there's a market for both. There will always be some those people who don't want to go to the cinema. There'll always be that audience and they will just end up getting a pirated copy and watching it anyway. So this gives those people a chance to see an official version through the streaming networks. I don't think we'll see a lot of day and date simultaneous releases going forwards. I think it'll be more a case of two weeks later, three weeks later. Um, They'll give like an initial starter for cinemas, but not have the long release windows. But this is showing that the two can work hand in hand quite adequately alongside each other on the right films. And yeah, it, it gives them a lot more confidence for the industry. Analysts of the cinema industry are very optimistic about the return to cinema as a result of this weekend. They say it's still going to be a long haul before the return to the huge numbers of the past. The most optim- optimistic predictions say that it will be about 2024 when we start to see the same kind of levels of figures at the box office as what we saw in 2019. So there's still, still a bit of an uphill climb to be able to build it up, but it's definitely a good starting point to work from. Absolutely. And this film had to come out. Uh, it had to come out as it ties into into future Marvel work. And, um, yeah. you know, every time that a film is left on the shelf, it, it's losing money, it's losing revenue, and it, all it is, is is building up interest in, in, in the loans it took to, to, to be paid for. So uh, I'm glad it's out. I'm glad it's done really well. I'm glad it's done really well because you'll you'll hear our thoughts on it later. But I'm as, as I said, there's an appetite for going back to the cinema, and this film has pro- has proven it, and and that alone is well worth, uh, yeah, the the good news on this story. So moving on, Andy, what else we got? Uh, well, sticking with Disney for a second and Marvel, and the great Lord Kevin Feige has confirmed that the multi-film deals are a thing of the past now, and all the original deals with all the original actors from the first Avengers film have now expired, which means that some of the names are sticking around long past their deals through either story or personal choices. Chris Hemsworth, for example, as Thor, is happy to keep coming back and keep coming back as long as his character keeps evolving. Um, As Feig himself says, the the deals got a lot of attention way back when with, I think, Scarlett and Hemsworth and Evans and Sam Jackson. It varies project to project, cast to cast. Really what we want are people that come in are excited to be in the universe, excited at the opportunity to do more things, as opposed to being locked into contractual obligations. So it gives more freedom for new additions to the MCU to come and go and drop in and drop out without saying, well, you've got to be back for another four films. Oh, but I've got these projects I want to do. I want to line something up. Whilst it also gives the story makers a lot more freedom to branch out the universe in more creative ways without feeling that they've got to shoehorn in Captain America next on the next film. And we've got to put Iron Man into every film. Yeah, there's none of those restrictions. We, we've got a chance of seeing more variety and versatility throughout the MCU. For those who aren't quite clear what we're talking about. So originally what happened is when you signed on in a Marvel film, you signed on for a certain amount of films and appearances in in other work so you took quite a long-term contract and it it worked out very very well i mean marvel's when marvel started no one was certain that it was going to do well there was a vision and we've seen that vision play out 
uh, there was a, a lot of ideas being thrown around and it's metamorphized and, and, and grown into what the organization is today. But they were, you know, um, they were signing on these actors to do numerous films and numerous appearances in other films, which there were certain actors along the way that we lost. So I'm thinking of somebody like Terence Howard, who negotiated a deal. He was there originally to be a, a across, you know, the Marvel Universe, uh, uh, wanted to renegotiate his contract. And also at that point, um, this is pre-Disney, that they were very fugal as well with, with what they were spending. You know, they were spending a, a vast amounts on these movies. So he got the, he got the push and, and Don Cheadle ended up with the job. But it seems as though, it, well, it, now it gives a sense of trust, doesn't it? Because no one knew what Marvel were planning. People now want to jump aboard and uh, and are given that choice to say, look, you can do four movies with us or you can do eight movies with us if you're having a good time. And as we've seen with Chris Hemsworth, he's not bailed and he's sticking around for uh, at least another film. So, so we'll see. Moving on to uh, Joseph Kaczynski who gave us Oblivion and Tron Legacy, two films that I've got a lot of love for. He's set to adapt the graphic novel uh, Chariot for Warners. Have you have you read Chariot? Uh, I've not, no. I mean, um, I, it's, I know he's coming up next with Top Gun Maverick, and I know he's always had inklings of, of, of being um, influenced by graphic novels because he well, part of what he did was Oblivion. Yeah. He had a, a graphic novel as a, as a joint project to it. So, no, who's Chariot by? Do we know anything about it? Uh, well, I know what the story is, and now I want to track down Chariot uh, because it sounds right up our alley. Uh, the story for Chariot riffs on old franchises like Knight Rider. A Cold War programme provided agents with a state-of-the-art sports car weapon that they linked into, but one car sank into the ocean decades ago. Its agent still on board and connected up. And now, in the present day, a petty criminal stumbles upon the wreck of the chariot and finds out that the agent's consciousness is still inhabiting the car that sounds awesome <laughs> it is the dark side <laughs> of night rider the dark rider maybe joseph krasinski's sci-fi outings have always have some kind of like philosophical musings but also some great action adventure as well and i'm i'm quite interested to see what you can do with this uh, project so this is one i'm going to be keeping my eye out for moving on Bad Lieutenant, the film that came out in 1992, gave us Abel Ferrara's brutal bad cop, played by Harvey Keitel, a cult following. It's telling a story of a rogue cop that's spiralling down into a series of events of his own making. Then in 2009, Werner Herzog gave us a spin-off film of it called Port of Call, New Orleans, which starred Nick Cage, which lost some of the grit, but went completely into the Nick Cage crazy and worked as a result. Well, producer Ed Pressman has revealed this week that he plans to bring the franchise back to life with six, yes, six spin-off films in the pipeline. Six seems a bit much, doesn't it? It does until you read the reasoning behind it. He's aiming to adopt an approach similar to Netflix's criminal series, with each tale being set in a new country, focusing on police corruption in places such as the UK, Germany, Italy, South Korea and Argentina, and the negotiating to get an idea for France. And each film is to be done as its own separate entity in the local language feature made by talent from that country. OK, now I'm more intrigued. Helmers have apparently been lined up, although no details were released at the time and scripts are currently being penned. I, I like the idea of it because it's basically given film creators a chance to tell their own story in their own unique way to put under this umbrella. 
of bad lieutenants. Okay. Yeah, I'm now more interested. I, I, I can see how it ties into the original idea of Abel Ferreira's bad lieutenant. I was never sure whether the Nick Cage one was a reboot or it was a, a different character. Um, I, I was always a bit fuzzy on what it was what it was trying to be. I, I enjoyed I've enjoyed both versions. I think Kaitel versions is is the superior film. Yeah, I've got a bit of news. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Jean Smart, but she over the last couple of years has been everywhere, predominantly in TV. We saw her in Fargo, the TV series. Then she was in Legion. Then she made a memorable appearance in Watchmen. She's in a, a, a great series that's out in the US now called Hacks, which she's supposed to be phenomenal in. So in her later life, she's just delivering some great work. However, she has signed on, and we spoke about this movie uh, last week. She signed on to Damien Chazelle's Babylon, which is the ever-growing cast of his latest film. But Jean Smart really is... She's just must have a fantastic agent because they they're, they're signing up. And a quick aside, she joined Watchmen really late because the role was originally going to Sigourney Weaver, who dropped out kind of in the eleventh hour. And Gene Smart ended up joining the cast and making a great impression in that series. Here's one that I didn't see coming. You might remember when we spoke about Mattel Toys and making a rush to the big screen. And we mentioned the lineup includes things such as uh, Rock'em Sock'em Robots and Barbie, a film uh-huh. based upon the popular doll who can seemingly do any job as long as you buy the outfit set. So which director would be perfect for such a vacuous film about a toy? Well, and this suddenly makes it interesting, doesn't it? Because I know who, who the director is of whom you speak. Uh, and she suddenly joining it makes it a much more interesting watch than, than, it, than it would have been. Not saying I'm going to rush ahead and see it, but I'll let you say who. Yep. The director is Greta Gerwig. The visionary director behind films such as Little Women and Lady Bird has signed on to direct. Now, it shouldn't be as major a shock as it was because she was already on board as a co-writer alongside Noah Baumbach, which they've been developing the story idea since 2019 with Margot Robbie producing and starring in the film helping them guide the direction that she sees it going in. Robbie herself has confirmed the news this past few weeks and tackles the perception that people have. And in her words, with that comes a lot of exciting ways to attack it. People generally hear Barbie and think, oh, I know what that movie is going to be. And then they hear Greta Gerwig's writing and directing. And they're like, oh, well, maybe I don't. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was completely a left field choice. And it's made a whole new approach for where the film could come from, where it could move to, and what it could all be about. It's not just going to be the vacuous, bubble-headed, blonde, bimbo character that people kind of expected it to be. Well, this is it, isn't it? When you do take that kind of character and you do put a new zing on it, there was a, and it, and it terribly at the box office, the Josie and a Pussycats movie, uh, yeah. which was one of the funniest, cleverest, mm. smartest comedies because they did something really brave and, and they dissected the music industry uh it it didn't find an audience but it was still a brave brave film that actually holds up well today and has gained a a cult following the tomorrow war which we both enjoyed and spoke about on a previous episode we both had issues with it but it was good entertainment on amazon well it did well for amazon on the opening week better than the michael b jordan led without remorse or the borat subsequent movie film so it's no surprise that a sequel is already being lined up between amazon and skydance films The hope is for all the key names to return. Director Adam McKay, writer Zach Dean, stars Chris Pratt, Yvonne Strahovski, 
J.K. Simmons, Betty Gilpin, Sam Richardson and Edwin Hodge. No info as to when they're planning to bring it or what it's going to be about, given the way the first film ended. Uh, maybe a new timeline offshoot has created a different future war. I don't know. Or maybe Loki has a hand in it. <laughs> Who knows at this point? But there's a sequel on the way. I'm not sure that we need a sequel to it. I, I kind of agree. Do we need a sequel to it? However, from what I, I've heard over the last week, that it was one of the most viewed, internationally viewed uh, uh, films that Amazon's ever had. Uh, and the, that opening weekend was, was phenomenal. Millions and millions of people. Uh, turned in to watch it and, and we know that amazon don't need the money so what they do need is is to people to subscribe to to prime um so they can chuck yeah. all the money that they've got to make a sequel because they know now they've got an audience and, and amazon have been looking for this for some time they've been looking for a franchise where where people come back and they they've got some recognizable content so, yeah, and once they've got hold of, of MGM, the, the, that's going to start happening for Amazon. Uh, meanwhile, over at Netflix, Red Notice, which is the most expensive film to date, costing them $200 million, has been given a release date of November the 12th. This is an action feature which sees Rock the Dwayne Johnson as the world's number one profiler who goes head-to-head against Gal Gadot's art thief and Ryan Reynolds's conman. Written and directed by Ross and Marshall Thurber, who gave us Dodgeball, Central Intelligence, and Skyscraper, you kind of get the idea that you can you know what kind of direction this is going to be in. It looks like it could be fun, but at two hundred million, Netflix are banking a lot on it. Uh, again, you know that cast alone is going to 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 bring viewers to it. It's a foregone conclusion. Interestingly, you know, um, again, it makes you wonder. Netflix are in a very different business position than Amazon are, but it's a lot of money to spend and, and it can only be traced back to the fact that people are sticking around to, with Netflix in a way that, you know, they are dipping in and out of some of the other streaming services. Uh, we talked about this with Apple TV. Are we going to stick around after we've finished watching whatever current batch of series we are involved in? So yeah, it's kind of interesting. Netflix have got to keep bringing up the big guns, which leads me to my next story. You know, my thoughts on uh, Army of the Dead. Yep. Well, there is a prequel coming called Army of Thieves, which centers around the character of, of Ludwig, who was the safe cracker. So the actor who's playing Ludwig is also the director. And how that's going to tie into Army of the Dead, other than there being the same character, is that does that mean there's going to be no zombies in it? Is there going to be no supernatural element to it? Because I'm assuming all those things happened before Army of the Dead. But Zack Snyder is building up his own universe of uh, dead movies over at Netflix. And he's got another project coming. Have you heard about this one? No. Ah, uh, so he's got another project coming. Apparently, a few years back, before George Lucas sold the Star Wars rights to Disney, Zack Snyder pitched a Star Wars movie under the title Rebel Moon, which was going to be a bit more of a shall we say, a grown-up approach, adultish approach to Star Wars. And then the whole uh, Disney deal happened and the idea got rejected. However, now Zack Snyder has uh, revisited that old script, given it a polish, and Netflix are now producing what would be the first in a brand new franchise for Zack Snyder based upon his original Star Wars pitch, which goes still goes under the title Rebel Moon. Now, looking at the story... It bears 
lesser resemblance to a Star Wars story as to a kind of a remake of Battle Beyond the Stars. <laughs> I've always wanted to see a remake of Battle Beyond the Stars because I think it's a fabulous movie that that with better special effects and, and a slightly better script would be an instant winner. But it looks like Rebel Moon is kind of partly my wish. So Zack Snyder is really making making out big time on Netflix. Yeah, he's stepping away from I mean, it's clear that he's he's finding his own voice in different ideas now that he's no longer anything to do with the DC films. Yeah, and he looks like he's producing his own franchises, doesn't he? He's he's going with his own yeah. ideas. Yeah, which all the campaigners who still want them to restore the Snyderverse and still want him put back on DC. No, let him go off and have fun with his own toys because he's obviously enjoying himself and he's getting to really have full creative control. Whether you like the films or not, at least you're going to be getting his vision on each of these because Netflix very, very rarely interfere with a director's vision on a project. And perhaps they should have done with Army of the Dead. But that's another story for another time. Yeah. But I'm kind of thinking he's going to be walking on some amount of thin ice, uh, you know, not infringing into Star Wars territory, if that was his <laughs> original pitch. But as I said, the the idea for the for the script seems closer to me to um, uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. And that intrigues me. Uh, Matthew Vaughan, the director behind Kingsman, Kick-Ass, X-Men First Class, Layer Cake and Stardust, is lining up a pretty sweet cast for his next project, a big budget spy thriller based on upcoming novel Argyle by Ellie Conway, which follows the world's greatest spy as he's caught up in a globe-trotting adventure. Casting on this includes names such as Bryce Dallas Howard, Henry Cavill, got a lot of love for Henry, Brian Cranston, Sam Rockwell, Sam Jackson, Catherine O'Hara, John Cena and um, Dua Lipa. Yes, Dua Lipa, the singer, makes her acting debut and will provide music for the film. I'm not sold on her as an actress yet, but I remain to be convinced on that one. Yeah, it, it kind of does take away uh, Henry Cavill going up for Bond now. Yeah, I mean, if he gets involved in this, this is clearly a, a pastiche of a Bond kind of approach. Uh, there's hopes that this could be a franchise starter in the mould of Bond born Mission Impossible. The screenplay's been penned by Jason Fuchs. And Vaughan apparently has at least three films planned out, saying that the early draft manuscript was, in his words, one of the most incredible and original spy stories since Ian Fleming's books of the 50s. Mm. So I'm more than happy for some Cavill spy action here. Yeah, I've got a lot of love for Man from Uncle. I've said it before. I think it was a, yeah. an underrated movie. Really only let down by not being Man from uncle enough. Yeah. Um, Star Trek The Motion Picture is getting a 4K restoration of the director's cut oh. planned for release in 2022. I'd go see that. I'd definitely go and see it. The director's cut, for those who don't know, alters about 10% of the film and it allowed director Robert Wise the chance to finish the film how he originally wanted, as well as clean up some of the picture and sound. The cuts trimmed some of the scenes that didn't quite work and tightened the film up whilst adding a few new effects to give a grander scope. The new 4K restoration is being overseen by producer David C. Fain, restoration supervisor Mike Matesano, and effects technician Darren R. Docterman, and will result in a 4K UHD presentation with Dolby Vision HDR and Dolby Atmos soundtrack launching on Paramount Plus next year and hopefully cinemas internationally. A box set of the four Trek film, first four Trek films is due this September in 4K, but will only include the theatrical release of that first film. Might be enough for some Trek fans. The first film was never universally loved. But for me, 
the motion picture director's cut is an absolutely fantastic film. And I will be waiting until the eventual Blu-ray release of the director's cut version before getting the 4K version. And if it gets a cinema release, I'll be there front and center loving it. I've got the uh, DVD release of the director's cut and it is a, a much superior piece of work to the film that we've got. It doesn't iron out the initial problem that the initial storyline has and that that it's a dull story. But the the trimming of it, it's actually shorter than the uh, than the cinema release. And, and the subsequent replacement effects work gives it that bigger, grander style that was always, always lacking. Um, I've, I had love for the motion picture when it came out, just because it was Star Trek on the big screen. Yeah. As I've grown older, uh, I think I've got a bit more wiser to it. Um, I remember the naysayers at the time not liking it. And I thought it was a, to some extent, it was the, the last piece of big science fiction. And I mean, when I mean by big science fiction, the big ideas, epic, almost 2001 approach, which is not what we expected from Star Trek. And it found its feet with with Wrath of Khan. But but seeing on the big screen in its director's cut form, I'll, I'll definitely be there. Now, the question is Comic-Con a relic of the past that is no longer relevant? Uh, do you want me to answer it now? Or is it a, a, a rhetorical <laughs> question? Well, it, it's looking like it's more and more the case because it's been revealed that both Marvel and DC are skipping the show yet again as they both have their own publicity events lined up. DC's fandom, similar to last year, will be repeating that process in October and Marvel used the Disney-hosted events and so will probably await D23 or the late this year Investor Day presentation to showcase their own upcoming content, which means that it's it's slim pickings for Comic-Con these days. Yeah, I mean, you went to Comic-Con to see Hemsworth and Downey and, and the Avengers United on, on stage. And that shouldn't be the only reason you go to Comic-Con, but it was a massive, massive draw. But we saw the success of the fandom from DC last year, and we know how successful that was at launching you know, that's where we first saw the, the Batman trailer, if I remember correctly. So yeah. um, you can see that it's more controlled. Uh, I, I'm on thin ice on this one because I can see really see both points of view on it. But I, I'd still like to go to to the big Comic Con at some point. I've never been and, and would enjoy a trip. So if anybody's listening and, and wants us to go and cover it, we'll do it. Yep. Uh, just send the tickets. Uh, well, send the tickets to our Email address, podcast at filmfile.uk, and uh, we'll happily go and cover it in full detail. Uh, we'll stream all weekend. Even when I'm sleeping, we will stream. Uh, Sony might still make an appearance at Comic-Con, with Venom 2 and Morbius being possible showpieces, but it is a growing trend of big-name companies are skipping multi-company conventions in favour of their own showcases, and this reflects in both the movie and the game industries, where E3 is no longer as popular as it used to be, because all the major studios have their own events these days. And rounding off the news, Gerard Butler, he gets a bit of a bad rap from me on this show, I'll be honest. <laughs> he <I'm>... <laughs> redeemed himself, though, with Greenland, let's be honest. He did, yes. So because of Greenland, I'm now a bit more, you know, I'm a bit more open to anything that he's going to churn out, including when it just sounds like another generic plotline action film. His next action thriller, Chase, has wrapped shooting. It's got a similar plotline to the Kurt Russell late 70s flick Breakdown, where Butler now plays a character called Will Spann, who's a guy driving his soon-to-be ex-wife, Lisa, Jamie Alexander, to her parents when she vanishes without a trace at a gas station stop-off. Suspicion falls on him, 
and he ends up on the run from the police whilst desperately trying to find out what happened to her, finding himself drawn into a dangerous criminal underbelly in a race against time. It does sound like breakdown. <laughs> it really does. So, a bit generic, but you know what? I'll, I'll give him a chance. That's the best you can do, Andy. Before Greenland, I'd have, I'd have written this film off, but now I remain to be... I hope to be surprised. There, there's still a chance. As we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, they are working on a Greenland sequel, which is intriguing at best, even though I personally don't think there should be one. And that is, as we like to call it, the end of the news. If you're enjoying The Film File, and we hope you are, then why don't you head over to your favourite podcast platform and hit that subscribe button. And you'll be getting the shows and news about upcoming shows faster than Gerard Butler making another action movie. <laughs> and if you want to get in touch with us good folks at Filmfile Towers, all you have to do is head over to Twitter and follow us at Filmfile UK. Head over to Instagram and be frightened by pictures of us, Filmfile UK. Or drop us an email, podcast at Filmfile UK. Tell us anything. Except for your worries and strives. We are not agony ants. But, you know, if you do send us one, we will happily like answer it on it. <laughs> I'd like to do that. <laughs> I think that should be should be an idea that we should should uh, definitely progress. Let's think. We could get that. Like, like, we could get some nice low key music underneath, like with sentimental things like my story that used to be on the radio years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. Do it. <laughs> do, 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 <laughs> Tell us your favourite film do, do. that affected you deeply. <laughs> And instead of, uh, instead of playing a piece of music, we'll play the trailer to that film. <laughs> and talking about films that have affected us deeply. So moving swiftly along to this week's Deep Cut. Going back to the heady days of 1977, this American science fiction film written and directed by Steven Spielberg introduced us to the notion of we are not alone in the classic Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Wake up. Honey, Ronnie, wake up. You're not going to believe what I saw. Ronnie? Oh, don't. Not now. No, no, no. Listen, Ronnie, Ronnie, I never would have believed it. There was this, uh, in the cab, it was this whole, it went, it was a, it, there was a red wuss that, that... This Roy, really... um, I called you. And, um, here. McGovern, they want you to call you know, right away. They said they couldn't reach you. I turned the radio off. You know those pictures in the National Geographic about the Aurora Boroughs? This is better than that. This is really... Come on. Come on, Ronnie. Get up. Come on. Oh, Roy, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. I don't know if anything's wrong. Get up. Get up. I'm not kidding. Come on. Come is that on. an accident? No, it's not an accident. Ronnie? You wanted to get out of the house anyway, right? Well, not at four o'clock in the morning. Ronnie, uh, I need you to see something with me. It's really important. Okay, all right. What about the kids? What? Oh, the kids, I'll get the kids. So this came out in 1977 on the back end of Star Wars. And it was really one of those films that is now has become part of the summer tradition. Big idea, big concept, science fiction films. Spielberg was in familiar territory, having already done this with Jaws. Along came Star Wars and then along came Close Encounters. The film starred Richard Dreyfuss as Roy Neary and every man, an electric lineman, watches his life and quite ordinary world turn upside down after a close encounter with a UFO. I'm going to get this out of the way right at the top end of this. I absolutely adore close encounters. 
as much as I adore Star Wars and Superman the movie from that period. It's a huge part of my growing up. It's a huge part of making me the person I am today, the, the film fan that I that I am. And that's down to Steven Spielberg's quite wonderful Close Encounters. I've seen it all in its forms. I have a preferred version, which we'll get to as we go through. But I, I can't knock Close Encounters. I watched it very recently when I knew we were going to be doing this, and it still blows me away. It has drama. It has uh, amazing special effects. It has an epic quality. It's, it's painted on a huge canvas. However, at the heart of it is a very, very human story. And that's what really makes this film work. I'm currently reading uh, an earlier draft written by Paul Schrader. And what Spielberg brought to this and what made it absolutely unique is by making his lead character and a typical guy, an everyman, a, a person who's, um, whose life is turned upside down by the discovery and recognition of, of the idea that there are beings from other worlds. And he's brought into this, this bigger world than, than it's outside of his, outside of his worldview. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a fantastic uh, notion that really, really brought Spielberg into being the director that he is and of course paved the way for et so that's initially my thoughts on uh, on close encounters andy what are yours as with yourself this is a film that really hit me at an early age it this was one of those films like with star wars that i got to see on the big screen and it drew me into a love of what can be done on the big screen, what can be done in film and what can be done with sci-fi. Star Wars gave me action. It gave me adventure. It gave me lightsabers. It gave me thrills. This gave me conceptual sci-fi of a very downbeat nature, but with grand explorations. I've seen people gripe online about this over the past week, that nothing happens in the film, complaining that there's no excitement. But I think those people clearly miss the whole point of the film. It's a film about obsession with the unknown, where the thrills in the discovery that you aren't going crazy and you might get to touch that in which you truly believe. It's a simple tale of ordinary people affected by extraordinary events. And Spielberg tells this so perfectly. You can see where Spielberg learned the lessons that he learned during making Jaws. Because when he was making Jaws, he wanted to show the, show the shark off very early on. But the way that the shark never worked meant he had to tease glimpses. He had to keep the shark hidden. And by learning that keeping things hidden make it more effective benefits this film because we only get small glimpses of lights and craft early in the film. We get teasers of the wonders to come. And Spielberg knows what to show exactly and when. I mean, the early scene with Roy Neary's encounter in his truck is played out from inside the truck. You just see lights and then a huge light and then the, the truck is and like lifted by gravity and he's thrown about in it. But you don't see what did that. And that makes it all the more curious. It makes you engaged. It makes you, it makes you understand how he's had this encounter. He doesn't know what with, and he's desperate to find out what with and how it affects him throughout. You can follow that journey as it goes along. Spielberg saves the full reveals for a rather spectacular end. And boy, when it comes, is it spectacular? It's... The detail on those crafts at the end are just wondrously beautiful. And adding in throughout the film, this musical language 
in order to communicate that the encounters had kind of passed to humanity to try to decipher. It just took a whole new way of doing aliens. I, I couldn't agree more. And it disappoints me to say that people have said this film that, that nothing happens because an awful lot happens, uh, an awful lot of internal drama. And, and this film is at its pure heart is a drama. It's about one man's sense of discovery, leaving his life behind for something that has, has changed him so remarkably. And as you said, the reveals of the UFOs are, are absolutely dramatically happened at the right place. Just when you don't think you're going to see anything, there's, there's uh, some kind of a light show as we see the initial UFOs. But Spielberg holds off. There's, there's the impending sense of what's going to happen. And the first time you see the mothership appear over the top of the Devil's Tower in Wyoming, it's, it's breathtaking. Um, there's a sense, of, a, a sense of joy, a sense of apprehension, fear, and it all comes from that initial initial shot, and you know that those characters of lives have been have been changed tremendously. I mean, Steven Spielberg started this as a, as one of his own handmade films, a, a film called Firelight, mm. which incorporated a lot of the ideas of Close Encounters and what it became. And he spent a lot of time trying to get this made, and um, studios rejected it. You know, this is a film about flying saucers from outer space and and uh, they just didn't get it. And then Jaws landed for him and he was the biggest director in the world and everybody wanted to to work with him. As I said, he originally went to Paul Schrader to write the script, Paul Schrader, who gave us Taxi Driver. And Spielberg said that when he visited Schrader, it was one of the most uh, disappointing and most embarrassing screenplays ever professionally turned into a major film studio. Uh, it was a terribly guilt-ridden story, not about UFOs at all, uh, entitled Kingdom Come. And the protagonist was a 45-year-old Air Force officer who'd worked on Project Blue Book, and the government is there to ridicule and, and debunk flying saucers. Uh, but when he makes contact, he works on uh, a mission to try and make contact, a long way removed from, from Spielberg's vision. And Spielberg sat down and, and wrote the script himself and, and worked with David Geiler, who performed a rewrite, Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins, who were friends of Spielberg, suggested uh, the plot device of kidnapping the child. The story grew and turned out less to be Kingdom Come, to be the close encounters of the third kind that we know today. Interestingly enough, Spielberg, when he started making the film, reached out to the US Air Force and NASA, who declined to cooperate with the film. And in fact, wrote a 20-page letter to Spielberg saying that this film was dangerous. And in Spielberg's own way, if NASA took the time to write that, then he knew there must be something happening and something they had to think about. It's a fantastic movie, works on many, many different levels and works on those levels because he doesn't take the easy route. He goes with the small town guy, the everyman, fantastically portrayed by Richard Dreyfuss, and he incorporates himself into this and how a UFO encounter would change us and that's the magic of the film not just the the amazing special effects the magic of what if it was us up until this point it's very rare that you got an alien invasion kind of film where the aliens weren't bad guys this was a very optimistic first contact approach to take to sci-fi and spielberg delivered it fantastically and it's a theme that he would later explore with et with another peaceful alien visiting earth but that played on a completely different level but still had that optimistic the aliens are not to be feared 
we should be feared more than the aliens. It's a cracking film. And I originally saw, obviously, the original version when I was a kid. And then there was the special edition, which when that f- special edition first came out, where Spielberg gave it, got given a chance to go back and retouch things up, but he had to include an additional extension to the end scene to show the interior of the mothership. Something that he was insistent that he didn't want to do, but in order to get a chance to go back and make tweaks that he wanted to do, he had to agree to this. And I remember seeing that when it first came out and thinking, oh, wow, that's something different at the end, but never feeling as enamoured by it. And it kind of it kind of nulled the film a bit for me. But then a good few years later, he had a chance to revisit it and do his director's cut, which he got a chance to add more scenes back in, but took away that inside the mothership ending. And he delivered for me the perfect version of it. The more recent director's cut version is the perfect representation of Spielberg's vision in this film. And that's the one that I revisited this past few weeks and that's the one that i revisit every couple of years and love each and every time that i watch it i'm always enamored every time i watch it and just like you andy i go to the director's cut it features the 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 best moments out of the special edition which is the the ship in the in the gobi desert for instance It, it builds it builds in 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 smaller ways what i missed from the special edition was was the heartfelt moment that that dreyfus has with his wife and I, and I really disliked them entering the mothership as much as, as you did and, uh, and and clearly as much as Spielberg did. Uh, but this version is, is an absolute superb. It's a definitive version of Close Encounters. And it just proves what a spectacular movie that even after 40-odd years of, of it being out there, it can still be inspiring. I, I can still be awestruck by it and, and I can fall in love with it the next time that I, I watch it. And I... And I We'll watch it again and again, just like you. And I will keep going back and revisiting Close Encounters at the right time. It's a film that when I revisit, I don't... There's some films that you revisit as comfort watchers and you'll half watch them while doing other things. But this is a film that when I revisit it, my attention is focused 100% on everything that's going on. Even though I know what's going on, I love to see it all unravel again on the screen in front of me. Yeah, it's as we talked about with Star Trek, a big ideas film. Uh, in a way that that some science fiction now, and I'm not just looking at you tomorrow war, but this is the kind of science fiction where it deals with with big ideas and and, and big themes dramatically and, and beautifully put together and structured. And I kind of miss that side of Spielberg. We don't see that Spielberg anymore um, because he's grown absolutely, but I, I do miss that Steven Spielberg very much. Okay, so Andy's had a chance to watch a few films. And um, Andy, if you want to talk about those before we get into our discussion of Black Widow. First on my list, and I mentioned last week the part one of this, Fear Street Part 2 landed this week, 1978. Hello? It's not over. You are our last chance. How do we end this? You have to go back. 1978, the first day of camp. Looks like blood. Do you have a better idea? Maybe. Who are you? Nick Good. Bad things always happen to shady siders. You feel it, don't you? There's something holding us down. Who's seen us? Picks up the events from the end of the 1994 film. 
Uh, the film starts with Berman, the survivor of an earlier massacre, recounting the events of the Camp Nightwing massacre in 1978 to Dina and Josh. The film then flashes back to give us that story as its own horror tale as we follow a character named Ziggy Burnham, a shady sider at Camp Nightwing, who finds herself constantly taunted or attacked by sunny siders in the camp. In amongst this tension, the camp nurse attacks one of the kids and speculation starts that she was cursed by the witch, Seraphia, who we learned a bit about in the previous film but still don't know a lot about this curse. Seeking info onto the curse, it's discovered that Fia made a deal with the devil in 1666 and a diary gives clues as to where her house might be. Can the gang in 1978 stop the curse as things at the camp begin to escalate? I mean, we know the answer already because the previous film had already told us what would happen, but that doesn't serve against the film. In fact, the way that the trilogy is playing backwards allows the mystery from the first film to be retroactively revealed while sowing seeds of a potential falsehoods that the next dive into the past will fix. And I love this aspect. We're simply working on gossip and rumour in the first film, but now we see the basis for the rumour and seeing the effect basically of Chinese whispers in reverse as events are playing out, making this trilogy a great analysis and deconstruction on how myths and legends evolve over time. But putting that depth to one side for the moment, this is another brutal and bloody horror film with a Stranger Things vibe to it again. We even have a Stranger Things cast member in a lead role in this one. It riffs on 70s and 80s horror tropes whilst also offering dark humour into the mix. It feels more confident and outing than the first film was and it treats the story a little better, but it does lap the impact that that first film had. But it's still strong enough to make me anticipate the final chapter, 1666, which lands later this week. Thoroughly enjoying this series. I think this is a great way to do a, a trilogy of horror-based films linked together. And releasing them so tightly together by Netflix was a perfect marketing move. Because there's no chance that you will get bored and not go back to the next one. You've only got seven days to wait. And your next review? So... This came as a surprise to me. It dropped on Netflix this week, came out of the cinemas about two years ago, Dora and the Lost City of Gold. The jungle is where I'm from. There's no need to be afraid. Just don't touch anything. We're going to die out here. We're on to something big, Dora. An ancient city made of gold. Parapata. Those bad guys are after this. Get that map. Uh-oh. We just have to get there first. There's no need to overreact. It's so awkward when adults cry. You just don't know where to look. Yeah, I saw this had landed. Let's get the initial question out of the way. Yes, I used to watch Dora. Hear me out on this one. I was definitely not the target age group. But my daughter, she was. She was the target age group and she was obsessed with it. So I would sit and watch Dora the Explorer with her when she was young. So I'm fully aware of what it is. And as a result, I really expected this film to play young and not really be made for me. But what I found was a very self-aware, fun slice of Tomb Raider-esque escapism that had me caught up in it from the start and belly laughing throughout. I've heard good things about this, Andy. This is a great film. This Dora knows what it is, and boy does it poke fun of itself in a brilliantly humoured way. From Dora as a child asking whether the audience knows Spanish words to the confusion of her family around her who are wondering who she's talking to, to a mask-wearing animated fox. Yes, the character Swiper makes his way onto the big screen in the real world, which has some cast members questioning the reality of the whole thing. 
The film cleverly blurs the real-life grounding with the ridiculous elements of the cartoon as Dora initially tries to adapt to society before events throw her into a jungle quest. This is solid family entertainment that all ages can like enjoy. I absolutely adored this film and will be going back and re-watching it again. It's such a fun jaunt. It's on Netflix at the moment. Can you say Delicioso? You sold me. You sold me. I'd heard good <laughs> things about it, I must be honest. And uh, I've been actually awaiting its appearance. That It's something I can say, hey, the kid wants to watch this. I'll watch it with you. <laughs> you you'll have a blast with it. You'll have a blast. Uh, the last film that I've got to see was um, Hitman's Wife's Hamster's Bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever they're calling it this week. Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. You're asleep. When you push me by the boobs, I could hear the little boy inside of you. Mommy, please don't die! I don't I think that's what I was screaming. You. Let's go do what we do and blow some things up. Take them to my torture chambers. What? You have separate torture chambers? Mark my words. The world will burn. <laughs> and here we go. Where is your shirt? Hi. Let's just get this straight out the gate. If you liked the first Hitman's Bodyguard, you'll probably get some enjoyment from this. If you didn't dig on that riff of action films, you're not going to enjoy this one at all because it takes it to the next level. It starts off with Reynolds as Bryce, stripped of his license, now finishing therapy and deciding to relax and step away, just as Salma Hayek's son, Sonia crashes into him and brings a gunfight along for the ride. Reunited with Jackson's Darius, who Sonia's married to, the dysfunctional trio of killers work to stop a madman from destroying Europe. It's more of the same. It's once more an excuse to play with action tropes and have fun. And it is fun. And the fun rests purely on the personalities of Reynolds, Hayek and Sam Jackson on screen. Their banter makes this film. But, and I need to stress this, I don't want them to ever make a third film because I think they've used up every riff on the action genre they can do. The buddy cop routines that are drawing upon lethal weapon are done to death now. Make this the last film. I enjoyed it, but you're outstaying your welcome if you go for a third one. I was never a fan of the first one. I thought it was just okay. Uh, I saw it on a plane. I think that's probably the best thing to have, best place to have seen it, really. I could have, have a meal halfway through. Uh, I'm not coming back at full pelt for the sequel. Uh, and a bit like you, does there need to be a third one? Because I thought by the end of the first one, they, they'd wrung every joke out of it. But, you know, Ryan Reynolds always works well on the big screen. He's, he's always got that charisma, which is, which is the saving grace for, for the first one for me. Okay, the big review this week, and we talked it up right at the beginning of the show, is Black Widow, the return to the screen of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The Avengers weren't my first family. What brings you home? We have unfinished business. Still fits. On July 9th, the experience will be worth the wait. You should have brought the Avengers. Oh, good punch, honey. Marvel Studios Black Widow. Uh, is it a game changer? 
is it a film that before we get crazy kung fu, more ants, multiverses, gods, a grounded Marvel film, is it what the audience has wanted? Well, apparently it is, as it's been not only very well received, but it's done remarkable at the box office. Again, featuring Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow, who is on the run from the authorities after the events of Captain America Civil War. The Black Widow receives a package from her adoptive sister, Yolanda, played wonderfully by Florence Pugh and more on her later. It leads her back to her old family as well as an old enemy and the architect of the much talked about, much dreaded Russia's Red Room programme. Andy and I got a chance to see this. Um, we talked about it uh, a lot on the on the journey home. And and I'll start this, uh, start the ball rolling on it. For the very, for at least three quarters of, of, uh, of the movie's run, this was almost my favourite Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe movie of the lot. Not to say, let's not take anything away from it, but for, for nearly the majority of its running time, it was almost up there with Endgame and Winter Soldier. Directed by Kate Shortland, who's more known for character pieces and a lot of this shows in this particular movie. It wears its influences plainly on its leathered sleeve. Bond, born. There's even a reference to Moonraker, which the last act sort of plays up. In many ways, it's the much more grounded Marvel Universe, in the same way that, that Winter Soldier was, for instance. And that's what makes it work, as well as a fantastic cast. Uh, and the fact that Scarlett Johansson, you get the impression that she's giving this film uh, absolute all. She's down as a producer. She was very involved in the construction of the plot and the script. And it feels like a, a real labour of love. Now, the first argument is, do we need to see uh, a backstory about somebody who ultimately we know is not going to make it? Well, that's what makes it interesting. While we don't want to know more about the future, what we are is entangled and interested in this character's past, which makes what we know that happens to her even more heartfelt as we see her become less of a psychic and a fully rounded character in her own right. Andy, your thoughts? Uh, first things out the way, when that MC Marvel logo came up on the screen to that theme music that we're so familiar with now, now I know that we've seen it so many times on Disney Plus before all its shows over the past year, but there was something about sitting in a cinema and seeing that unfold again that made me emotional. In the same way that hearing John Williams' Superman score when Superman Returns hit the big screens, hit me in an emotional way. This made me realise cinema's back. The MCU is back on the big screen. And I felt like I was home again. Pure, I turned to you at the time and just went, I feel quite emotional right now. <laughs> and it, that was genuine because it was just such a great thing to see that. And then we get into the film. Now, I didn't have a lot of expectations for this film because like, like you've kind of hinted at, as I wondered, did we need to explore a character that we already know what happens to it? What is there to know? But you kind of forget that there was all these mentions about the red on her ledger and her mysterious past that we'd never really had fleshed out. And that's what this film is all about. It's all about exploring those aspects that have haunted her throughout her life and given her a chance to resolve them, whilst also it sets up beautifully events to come in the Marvel Universe going forward. 
you've mentioned the references that you could draw with parallels of Bond and Bourne. And for me, straight away, I turned to you at the end of it and just went, that was the Bourne ultimatum as a Marvel film. <laughs> yes, it was, because, yeah. <laughs> because switch out Treadstone with the Red Room and you've got the similar action fuel take on brainwashed sleeper agents who break their programming to shut down the organization that they were part of. And that's not a bad thing. Because it allowed for a film that has a very different tone to the MCU outings. It was very dark in that opening act. And yes, there is a negative. The negative is the final act, which resorts into CGI action, which is great. It looks amazing. But it just feels a different contrast to the film that it has up to it. And like you said, for three quarters of the film, it was possibly your favourite Marvel film. And I can kind of get that because for me, it's in the top tier of Marvel films, but I think that final act just became a bit too generic Marvel. Yeah, it took us back to the superhero genre, didn't it, really, after it taken us so much out of that. Uh, I mean, you talked about uh, Fast and Furious 9, with the, the constant yep. mention of family in it. This film is about family at the heart of it, and that's what worked. That's what made it different it gave it a rock solid foundation to build everything else on. So to some extent, the act three, which we get into familiar Marvel territory, you know, huge explosions, big, big, massive uh, uh, set pieces. It took away from, from what's, what was genuinely quite a small story about smaller characters working in, yeah. a, in a realistic world. Yeah. It, the, the thing to notice with the action as well is that when it goes to its really ridiculous nature, now, whilst that would be fine if you were talking an Iron Man or an Ant-Man or even like or Thor, Black Widow is just a human. And some of the things that she was doing were quite superhuman. And I get it's a comic book character, but there's moments when you see her get hit with something that you go, well, that's killed a person. Oh, no, she's not dead. And that kind of broke it a bit for me, is that it should have felt a bit more grounded. She should have been suffering a bit more from the injuries that she should have sustained. Instead, she's like an invincible super being. And she was never an invincible super being. She was just a top trained agent. Uh, but the good in this film outweighs that bad. Yes. The casting is top notch. Absolutely top notch. And Johansson finally gets a chance to really dig deep into the character as we explore the red on her ledger and the emotional turmoil that she's been really struggling. David Harbour is magnificent. He's a good dose of comic relief, but never stealing any moments as a result. Rachel Weiss is as good as she generally is in any film anyway. And Ray Winston, generally decent in the support roles. All three of them, it's worth mentioning, have very dubious understanding of what makes a Russian accent. <laughs> yeah. I need to make that clear. that <laughs> um, I'm not sure what part of Russia they're from, but it was South Africa at some point. Uh, but Florence Pugh is the absolute standout in all of this, as she plays the emotionally damaged younger sister to Natasha, who's broken her programming and immediately looks for help from her big sister, who's an Avenger, thinking that she'll be able to bring her Avenger friends and save them all. And then quite disappointed when it turns out that she's not going to do that. And you can see the heartbreak. You can see the bickering that sisters have. You see the sibling rivalries. You see all the aspects of, like you say, family that would naturally come. Even though these weren't a real family, they felt like a real family. And that's what they become during this film, isn't it? They become a real family. Absolutely. You see the love start to build up between them as they start to bond as a proper family. And when it, yeah, even when it comes to the action, Florence Pugh delivers completely and lays the groundwork for her new widow role by the end of the film. I'm hotly anticipating seeing more of this character to come. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
talking about the Yelena character played by Florence Pugh. A, Florence Pugh has been good in everything that she's that I've seen her in. Um, this gave her a, a big canvas to work on, and the the fact that it sort of steps up where Marvel is going to go with these legacy characters, these characters who are inheriting the mantle of, of characters that we've seen before. Spoiler, we are certainly going to see more of her in the Hawkeye TV series. Uh, and that was kind of an interesting that, that instead of building up to the next movie, it actually built up to the one of the next upcoming TV shows. So again, it was important this film came out. The, the longer it was holding on, yeah. Uh, the more it interrupts the flow of the of the Marvel universe, but a damn good uh, adventure film, a uh, moments of greatness, slightly let down, and only very very slightly by the familiarity of a, a last act, but it brought something new to a character that we've been seeing over eight years, and did the character proud, and as a swan song, it was yeah. the perfect swan song for the widow. I guess that leads us neatly into talking about Loki. Well, we're in the Marvel world, don't you think, Andy? <laughs> oh, definitely. And there was a lot to enjoy this week. Uh, I'll let you kick off on this one. So this week was a pure comic book fanboys dissection episode. Whilst it definitely moved the story along for people who don't know comics in, inside and out, and the daughter is completely looking forward to the final episode coming up, um, it, it's set in this like limbo dimension outside of time where all the Lokis that have been banished there from being removed from their own timeline have kind of factioned and joined forces in different groups and factions, which it appears are all rivaling each other. But it was all about, it was about Loki exploring himself again. We see various other Lokis in action that's fun. Richard E. Grant's coward, who used an illusion and fled Thanos, and spent as such spent a lifetime in regret, is a great addition. And it makes Loki that we know, look at this character and realise that he could have easily gone that way and lived a life of regret. And it's another aspect of this. We mentioned this on the first episode, that this is not the Loki who had evolved over the MCU. This is the Loki that was still very selfish. And they're using this series to have him evolving by seeing the mistakes that he could have made. And the most poignant one for me was the teenage Loki, who when it was like, and what did you do? I killed Thor. And that made me think back to Thor Ragnarok when there was the little throwaway jokey line about how when we were young, Loki turned into a snake and then he stabbed me and we were eight years old. And it was played for smirks in Ragnarok. But now it's given a poignancy because that's that Loki. That's the Loki who has grown up with that knowledge on him. And you can see when when Loki finds out, our Loki finds out, I'm going to refer to him as our Loki. Let's be honest. We're going to refer to the core Loki as our Loki. When he hears that story said, the look on his face tells you everything about what he genuinely th feels about Thor. What he initially thought would have been a practical joke could have had serious consequences. And he's learning. And that's what this is about, as well as finding out who is behind all the temporal meddling and creating this perfect timeline because there's something dark, there's something mysterious that has been guarded by this supernaturally giant cloud creature. Now, as you know, I've, I've not that I've, I've not got any love for Loki. I have. I think it's it's been problematic in some areas. It's taken its time trying to decide what kind of a series it is. And and this episode, more than any, was about revealing who Loki was. And it's, uh, I mean, in the in sense of the series, it's about finding Loki about Loki understanding who he is and his place in the universe. And, and this episode did that. Uh, and it 
brought us um, the different incarnations of, of the Loki. And of course, you can't talk about this episode. We're talking about Richard E. Grant's classic Loki uh, and with a, a fantastic payoff uh, for that character as well. And it was just great to see the, the, you know, the original Jack Kirby costume brought brought to screen. And when people mm. say, you know, the costumes don't look like they do in the, in the comics, there's a reason. And that was <laughs> this episode proved that reason. Um, was I disappointed that uh, they brought back Owen Wilson? Yes and no, but I never really thought that we were we were we were done with that character. But it was it's an interesting an, an interesting take on where this character is going to end up. Is he back in the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe for good after this? Who knows? Now we can't really talk about this episode without mentioning what's on the other side of of the void. And you and I have speculated that it will be Kang the Conqueror. Uh, and, and I hate doing the speculation game because we, we fall into the Mephisto crowd and, and I don't <laughs> want to do that. But I, I do kind of, I'm, I'm kind of torn. Uh, I'd like to see, very much like to see Kang the Conqueror. But it, it suddenly, will, will it be a good payoff for, for a character to be introduced that we've never, ever seen before? Or is it a sort of a Wizard of Oz type ending, the guy behind the... Um, behind the curtain because we know Kang the Conqueror is but I guess if you've not invested in the show or you invested in the Marvel Universe uh, comics or movies you're not going to have much of a clue so is it going to feel like a, a red herring if that's the way that they're going to go you know do we not set this character up from from the get-go mm. and then introduce them so interesting to see where it goes with one episode left but I do think now we know what series it is it's taking its time to get there but it's it's ultimately revealed what the uh, uh, what the series is about. I speculate that the final episode will be more about the taking down of the TVA, stopping all the meddling with time from whatever's behind this portal to basically open up the multiverse for the films to come. And if we get if if there is Kang the Conqueror behind there, I reckon it'll be a mid credit sting. I reckon it'll just be a little tease. We won't get to see the the man behind the curtain. In this final episode, we will just get to see them take a, take apart the domain that's causing all this temporal interference. Um, I said at the head of all this that this is a comic book fanboys episode, and that's because there are Easter eggs upon <laughs> Easter galore, eggs upon galore. Easter eggs in this. There's scenery which are heads of like celestial beings that I was like, oh, oh. you've got. There's a scene where it pans down through the earth, and you see Molnir. And then you see a jar with a frog Thor trying to reach Mjolnir. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, it's frog! It's frog! <laughs> there, there was two issues of the Thor comic where Loki turned Thor into a frog as a joke. And it was great to have that reference. And then a ship lands. A, a, a ship from like, oh, about the 40s? Um, big battleship. And I looked at it and went... They're not. This isn't going to be the Eldridge, is it? And as it panned around and you saw USS Eldridge, I was like, oh my, the Philadelphia experiment is now part of the MCU. <laughs> and you didn't even just have to be a comic book fan. There was just references to so many sci-fi things or so many real world myths and stories of like abductions, etc. There's so much to dissect in this in this episode. And I've got a nagging suspicion that when I come to revisit it, I'm going to be going through and pausing it and then noting things down, pause it again, note things down. So much within this. There's always been Easter eggs. I mean, the one Easter egg that I missed was a picture of Stan Lee on the wall in the TVA. 
Um, no, I missed that I, one. I spotted online. I missed that one, but I saw the Thanos copter. The Thanos copter was great. The Thanos copter was great. So there's a lot if you're a big fan fan of Marvel comics to explore within this. I'm loving the fact that it's become more, like I said, a story about the evolution of Loki and Loki realizing who he is because he never got a chance to do that with this version of Loki. We're getting a chance to see him do this here. And I think kudos to um, all the cast involved. Uh, they've really been portraying this in a really heartfelt way. Well, we'll know what the outcome is uh, tomorrow as this recording is on a Tuesday. So you will uh, be going, ha, you got it completely wrong, fellas. <laughs> or boy, you were spot on. You'll know before we do. We'll talk about the last episode next week. And so coming this week on cinemas and streaming at cinemas, it's quite a busy weekend with Space Jam, a new legacy, bringing some more cartoon and real world action, adventure and sports entertainment uh, to the screens. Crudes 2, A New Age, gives something for the younger crowd and families to pop along and see some prehistoric animated fun. And for people who like horrors and thrillers, we've got Escape Room Tournament of Champions and also The Forever Purge, the fifth in the Purge series, which shows no sign of slowing down at all. Both land this weekend at cinemas. Over on Netflix, Fear Street Part 3, I've already mentioned it previously. Set in 1666, it's going to pick up the tale of where the curse all began. And over on Amazon, Guns Akimbo, which is a rapid paced action film with Daniel Radcliffe which is an absolute blast to watch with Radcliffe being a tour de force throughout well worth checking out and that's it for this week uh, another great episode but before we go we do this every week Andy and I will tell you about our neat things those are things that have been of interest to us whether it's something that we've seen read played ate you name it if it's neat then it's our neat thing and traditionally Andy goes first. So uh, I mentioned at the head of the episode, and we spoke about it last week, but we had a chance last week to speak to Harvey Morton for his Social Sanctuary podcast. And that the episode in which we talk about our love of film, what God is into film, and basically why we are the people who we are today and why we do this podcast. It was that origin story, wasn't it? It basically was. This this was our flashback origin story to fill in all those gaps <laughs> for the people who've been along like for the Black ride. Widow. I never thought about it like that. <laughs> Um, well, that episode goes out this weekend. It's going to be available via his website, thesocialsanctuary.co.uk. And it'll also be available on all major podcasting platforms. Be sure to drop over and check it out because you'll get a glimpse into why it is that we both do what we do and what film means to us and has meant to us right from our earliest memories through to today. It was initially planned as like a 20-minute discussion. Harvey had it in his head that it was going to be 20 minutes. And when he started off saying like, uh, it should be about 20 minutes, me and Lee both laughed because we knew how we can get <laughs> sidetracked. <laughs> and it, it went, worked out about 45 minutes in total. So give that a listen, find out more about us and be sure to um, tell Harvey that we said hi. Indeed, it was it was fun to do. It was uh, you you don't realize. Well, I I, I never realized, should I say, that how much we'd we'd spent on sort of the build up to putting the show together, and it was just nice to revisit it from from each of us uh, point of view. Okay, so my neat thing is something that's not happened yet and is about to happen, and that is my first gig of the year. It's yeah. been a long time coming, but I get to go on stage this Saturday, being Saturday the seventeenth of July at the Dirty Rockers live music uh, venue in Dudley with uh, my Alice Cooper tribute band, uh, Billion Dollar Alice. And it's 
been a long time coming with the last gig we did would almost be uh be a year ago everything got cancelled uh the band and i were getting a bit despondent but we've been rehearsing it's great to have something to focus to and fingers crossed and 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 uh and it is literally a case of fingers crossed. It would be a good gig and all that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, with it's, uh, it's not quite sold out yet. So there are tickets available. But it's that fingers crossed is that we, the government don't screw this up, this re-entry back into the real world. So we'll have more gigs to not only play, but to go to as well. And it's, I, I for one, am a little bit nervous the way things have been sort of thrown out over the last few weeks uh, with which seem to be careless announcements. There is still a raging pandemic going on. And uh, for the first time, I naturally know tons and tons of people who've now come down with this this dreaded virus. So uh, while the good news is we're playing again this week, and if you're in the Birmingham area, come along, come along and say hi. It'd be nice to meet you. And and also to know that we've got uh, listeners in the Birmingham area. That's my neat thing for this week. And that's it for another film file. It's always a pleasure to do this. We enjoy delivering this for you, and we hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoy producing it. Andy, you got a busy week? Well, we've got a busy few films coming out this weekend, so it should be a busy week at the cinema. And that's it for this week. See you next week. You can come and play now. (laughs) 